This is Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society. Healthy Rounds provides general information regarding medical conditions and diseases. The information is not intended to create a doctor-patient relationship. You're encouraged to consult your own medical provider for advice that applies to your own medical care. And now, Dr. Anthony Alessio. On WTIC News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Welcome to Healthy Rounds, the show that provides you with up to date medical information and we answer all of your health questions. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And today I have a special show. It's been kind of a busy week for me. I just got back late last evening from Houston, Texas, where I had the honor of giving grand rounds yesterday afternoon for the Department of Neurology at the Memorial Hermann. Medical Center. I, I It was an interesting trip. I, I learned so much about Houston itself, not a city that I've spent much time in, uh, but the Texas Medical Center is the largest medical center in the world. Now, the Texas Medical Center is made up of a variety of hospitals. Uh, we've all heard of MD Anderson Hospital. Well, it's not just a building. It's 17 buildings, and I'm not talking about little buildings. We're talking about skyscraper buildings that make up MD Anderson. Then you have Baylor University Medical School. Uh, You have the University of Texas Medical School, all within walking distance of each other. There is Methodist Hospital, which is uh, more famous, I guess, now because, you know, H.W. Bush, our former president, um, is unfortunately a, a frequent occupant there. But again, it's more of a private hospital uh, at Methodist. And then there is Memorial Hermann Hospital, which is the busiest trauma center in the country, the busiest stroke center in the country. And it is just it was just amazing to be there and to spend time there. So we're going to chat uh, in a little while with the chair. I, I was able to tape a an interview with the chair of neurology there, Dr. Louise McCullough. Dr. McCullough used to be here at UConn with us and then moved on to accept that position. So we're going to chat with her a little bit. And uh, as well as we're going to have an interview in the second half of the show with Dr. Veronica Santini. Dr. Santini is a specialist in movement disorders like Parkinson's disease. She's going to be calling in from Stanford University in California. Uh, The reason I brought Dr. Santini on is because it's one of those things, you're at this big meeting, this big convention of neurologists, and I'm walking down the hallway, and there are a variety of talks going on that are not in classrooms, and uh, they're almost like soapbox talks. But as I'm walking, without even seeing the presenter, I'm listening and hearing someone who was so engaging in the way she was talking about Parkinson's disease that I had to stop. I mean, I just stopped in my tracks Uh, because I don't know if it was the intonation of her speech, what she was saying, but it just drew me to uh, that talk. And I thought, boy, this is somebody who I have to get on the show. Uh, I also know Dr. Santini for years now uh, because she uh, has spent a lot of time in Haiti uh, working at our mission there. So she's going to come on, talk to us about some new breakthroughs in Parkinson's disease and movement disorders in general. This Day in Medicine – 
May 6, 1830, Dr. Abraham Jacoby was born. Now, Dr. Jacoby was an American pediatrician. He was president of the American Medical Association, but he is almost like the father of pediatrics in the United States. And there's a hospital in Bronx, New York, named Jacoby Medical Center uh, after Dr. Jacoby, who was born in 1830. But on this same day in 1954, Roger Bannister was an English medical student who ran the first sub-four-minute mile. So Roger Bannister, as he uh, later became knighted, uh, also became the most preeminent British neurologist. And he went on, finished medical school, became a neurologist, was so well-known as a neurologist, but was the first person to break the four-minute mile. And that was in 1954 on this day. So one of the things we've talked about on this show before and something I got to see in Texas was pre-hospital medicine. That is what's going on out in the field before you get to the hospital. And the University of Texas at Houston and Memorial Hermann have a mobile stroke unit. It's an ambulance with a CT scanner so that the patient can be picked up, they identify the stroke, do the CT scan, and start the clot-busting drugs. So they can now start clot-busting drugs before you ever get to the hospital because we know time is of the essence. The more time you deprive the brain of oxygen in that area, the more damage you're going to have and the longer it takes to get better. One of the other interesting discussions I had with one of the physicians there was about rehabilitation. They have a huge rehabilitation center as part of the Texas Medical Center. In fact, that's where uh, Gabby Giffords, Senator Giffords, that's where she was flown to to do her rehabilitation after brain injury. And what's amazing is that they are using robotics so much to get a limb moving and retrain the brain after a stroke to start moving that limb. And it's almost become common use there, and it's something I've never seen in a hospital around here before. But what they're explaining to me is there's a very different difference between functional improvement, so being able to accommodate and use the hand differently, and being able to use the hand the way you used it before. Functional improvement comes pretty quickly. You could teach techniques on how to use the limb to get things done. And that's what's encouraged in our healthcare system today. What I mean by that is it's quicker, it's easier, and they get you out of the rehabilitation center faster by getting you some functional improvement so you can get back to whatever you do. The real goal should be getting you back to using the limb the way you used it before. And that can be done. But it takes a very, very long time. It takes a lot of intense therapy, not only as an inpatient, but then again as an outpatient. And that's something that our system and most people can't afford because it would be ridiculous in terms of the cost. But my point being, it can be done, that the human brain can regenerate and get back to where it was before in terms of how to use a limb. Now, we're talking mostly about the upper extremity because that's where most of the work has been done. So 
there is that potential there and can be developed. Uh, one of the things I did on Thursday night while I was in Texas was uh, I met with the residents. These are the resident young physicians who were in training, and we went out to dinner. And it was great talking to them. I really enjoy talking to what are really the future of neurology and the future of medicine. What I found interesting is that uh, most of the residents were foreign nationals at some point. Some were born here. Some were here on J-1 visa. But it was really a global international group. <clears throat> but one of the things I asked them about was the issue of how many of your family members were also physicians? Because we hear all the time now uh, from family of the medical profession isn't what it used to be. Uh, uh, but what I find ironic is that applications certainly haven't gone down. And half of the group there either had parents or siblings who were also physicians. So despite the fact that the economics and delivery of medicine change in this country – and around the world. It's not just an American problem. Uh, people still flock to this uh, because it is such a rewarding profession. So it was great chatting with them and uh, spending time and seeing what's coming down the pike in terms of the research being done at the University of uh, Texas. And th the other point uh, I wanted to make is more research is being done in ALS um, they approved, the FDA approved a new antioxidant drug for ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. So these hopeless conditions, the things that we've always labeled as hopeless, uh, various brain tumors, so much research is being done in this country to get medications and therapies available to treat these things. So I left uh, Houston, Texas, very hopeful uh, for our system as we go forward. Um my telephone numbers here are 860-522-9842, 1-800-966-9842. You can also email me at info at alessimd.com. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. Just a reminder, at the Mohegan Sun tonight, is Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. They were there last night as well. It uh, should be a great concert. So if you're in that area, head right over to the Mohegan Sun. Uh, this week is going to be sports weekend, really, because we have the lacrosse playoffs on Friday night, uh, of which the Black Wolves are participating. And then Saturday, uh, we will have the opening game, the opening home game for the Connecticut Sun. So we're uh, looking forward to that. So a lot going on at Mohegan Sun, and it's just great. And if you get a chance, stay over in one of their great hotels. Next up, we're going to be listening to an interview I did yesterday uh, with Dr. Louise McCullough. And Dr. McCullough is the chair of neurology at the Memorial Hermann Medical Center. So we're going to roll that interview, and then we'll be back. This is Dr. Anthony Alessi, and today I am in Houston, Texas, at the Memorial Hermann Medical Center, the University of Texas at Houston, with Dr. Louise McCullough. Many of our listeners will remember Dr. McCullough. She's been a guest on our show when she was at the University of Connecticut, which she left to become chair of the Department of Neurology here at UT Houston. Louise, welcome. Thank you. And it's great to be here in Houston, Texas. And I have to tell you, I am 
impressed. Impressed by the size. I, I had really no conception of how big the medical center is here. Um, can you give our listeners some perspective in terms of how big this program is and how big the entire medical center is here in Houston? So we like to say everything is bigger in Texas, and that is true. So coming from Connecticut, a very small state, to right. uh, Texas, it takes about 14 hours to drive across. So that gives you some kind of idea of the whole state. The state is huge. It has a very big population of people. The Texas Medical Center is um, near downtown Houston, but it has its own skyline. It is the largest medical um, center in the world. It has the most, uh, the highest number of acute care beds, rehab beds. It's a very, very large center. And I guess the best way for people in Connecticut to kind of realize the size is um, the amount of people that come in and out of the TMC each day is about the same as uh, the number that come into Hartford. So the skyline and square footage and the number of people coming in and out is about the same coming out of um, Hartford, Connecticut. Is there anything that's not offered here? I mean, I've heard about, I mean, you do pretty much everything um, here. Is there something that's not offered at the medical center in terms of medical care? No. We offer everything. And if we don't offer it at Memorial Hermann, which is a large our hospital, my hospital, is called Memorial Hermann Hospital, is very well known for acute care neurology, specifically for stroke. We're one of the biggest stroke programs in the country. We are the biggest level one trauma center for both adult and children in the country. So we're very good at acute care. There's also multiple hospitals in the region, um, Methodist Hospital, Ben Taub Hospital, which is a public hospital, as well as the big game in town is MD Anderson, which is the largest cancer um, center in America. And at, if we don't offer it at Memorial Hermann, which we offer pretty much everything, um, including cancer. So just because MD Anderson is right down the road, and it is right down the road. Literally. Literally. <laughs> Two hospitals down. Um, we also have a very robust neuro-oncology program here at Memorial Hermann. Um, so there's a lot of different uh, resources available, but heart transplant, lung transplant, the most esoteric um, surgeries, fetal surgery, um, because Texas Children's Hospital is one of the biggest in the country. The, the, um, together with Memorial Herman also has a children's hospital, which has a very large fetal surgery program to fix things like spina bifida, um, uh, diaphragmatic hernias before delivery. So they do do it um, fetally, so the fetus is uh, surgically corrected before birth. Your catchment area is huge, and, and on my tour today, it's not just the state of Texas. So you have, what is it, three helicopters? Eight. <laughs> eight helicopters. Okay, so eight helicopters, and it serves, what, Louisiana, New Mexico? Louis yep. So we serve in a, pretty much every state in the country. Every state in the country, we have patients coming from there. The ones that we see acutely um, with, like, an acute stroke is about the helicopter radius, which is about 200 to 250 miles on a tank of gas. Um, so we see a lot of patients from Oklahoma, Louisiana, um, and Texas itself, as again, it's huge. It's a huge state. So even getting up to Dallas or to El Paso, um, can we can do um, helicopters or other transport. 
uh, for example, last time I was on, last month I took a transfer from the U.S. Virgin Islands. I took one from Seattle. So these are very specialized care cases that want to come here. Uh, a lot of times it's for stroke care or for vascular care. Um, we have a very large heart and vascular um, institute that does a lot of uh, heart surgeries and uh, uh, what we call LVADs, left ventricular assist devices. and basically surgeries that are very high risk that probably wouldn't be performed elsewhere. So we have a lot of patients coming in uh, from every state. But our catchment area is really the southwest. Louise, I guess in, in neurology, you're best known for your research in stroke. Mm -hmm. um, what's new? I mean, what have you found both, especially clinically? There are so many different things going on here that I'm not even familiar with in terms of not only the speed with which you take care of patients, um, but uh, kind of new ways of diagnosing stroke acutely and knowing whether to give a clot-busting drug or not. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about what's new on the acute side and then the research side? What's coming down? Okay, so I think probably on the acute side, the biggest advancement over the past 18 months has been the kind of approval and um, of endovascular therapy. So if you have a large clot in one of the big blood vessels in your brain, that we now go in and take that clot out. Um, and that's only been really accepted over the past two years that it really helps patients with acute stroke. You need to treat three patients to show a benefit. And when you think about using like cholesterol medications, that's hundreds of patients to see, to avoid one vascular event. This is one out of three patients will benefit from this therapy. So we need to find a way to get patients with these large strokes to centers that have the capability of removing those clots and removing them quickly. Now, one of the most interesting things that's come up recently in acute stroke is the DAWN trial, which has not yet been published, but should be coming out soon. Um, it's uh, also uh, NIH partner trial called Diffuse is also still enrolling, and that's shown that you can go in and take clots out for perhaps as long as 24 hours after stroke. So it kind of changes the game a little bit. The benefit, obviously, the sooner you take a clot out, the better. Um, there are patients who have a completed stroke within an hour. So now we're using imaging, so looking at people and seeing, is there a brain that's still alive that we can save if we take this clot out? And it turns out for certain people, select people, that they have things called collaterals, and they can keep parts of their brain alive for hours and hours and hours, and they may benefit for as long as a day after their stroke. So we need to think now beyond the box and making sure that we can get patients to a center where they're offered that if it looks like there's brain to save. And it may not be that we're we're saying no at three hours or no at six hours. It's really the imaging that's going to guide us to say, no, there's nothing to save, or yes, there is something to save, and we should go in and try this procedure. So that is one of the bigger um, new trials that's come out, and I think it will uh, quite rapidly become standard of care, just like removing clots has. I'm impressed because, again, you mentioned you got to get to the imaging. You have two CT scanners in your emergency room? We do. I guess. <laughs> one, I, one isn't enough. <laughs> no, because you have one just, and just we're yep. talking about it because often with stroke, when mm -hmm. you go to the emergency room, there's somebody already on the scanner. Yep. They're doing trauma, they're doing yep. something else. 
you have a separate scanner just yep, just for, for us, doing neuro stuff. Just for neuro. And we also have one in our ICU. We have a 32-bed neuro ICU, and we have a scanner up there as well. Um, we actually are building a new tower here at Memorial Hermann which is going to include a redesign of our emergency room. And I'm working, well, I'm trying to get the, um, to get the hospital administration to uh, build out a cath lab. So it looks like we will probably have a cath lab, a catheterization lab, right in the emergency room. So people can come right from the ambulance and get their thrombectomy right in the emergency room. And that will be used for both heart attacks and acute strokes. Thus, the importance of living near a major medical center. Exactly. Well, it helps, but as you know, here in Houston, we are also the first uh, city in America to have a mobile stroke unit. So that's a stroke unit with a CAT scan in it that can go get you. We can go pick you up, get you a CAT scan, and treat you with that clot-busting agent all right in the ambulance. So, um, and that's a, that's a kind of strategy that's been adopted by several cities now but Houston was the leader in that effort with Dr. Jim Grotta. And um, he's now treated several hundred patients with CPA in the field. Um, well, uh, Louise, listen, thank you very much for your time. Um, this has been great. We wish you the best of luck. We miss you in Connecticut. Oh, and I miss you guys, too. All right. You're all welcome in Texas. <laughs> thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks again. It was great chatting with Dr. Louise McCullough. We're going to take a break, and then we're back with Dr. Veronica Santini. We're going to be chatting about movement disorders. You're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. I'm your host, Dr. Anthony Alessi. And today, tonight, at Mohegan Sun is Tim McGraw and Faith Hill. So if you have a chance, get on over to the Mohegan Sun. Now, in this half hour, we're going to chat with Dr. Veronica Santini. Dr. Santini is a neurologist specializing in movement disorders, and she's calling in from California. Um, Veronica, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Alessi, and congratulations once again on having received the American Academy of Neurology's 2017 President's Award. Thank you very much. Uh, is what, it's what they do to more senior people, and you'll know that because you're <laughs> among uh, the younger members of our academy. Um, and I mentioned at the beginning of the show, I was captured by Dr. Santini's talk. Um, she was speaking uh, in public at, at a group that like little soapbox talks or whatever, but grabbed my attention. <laughs> Um, to a topic that I wasn't even familiar with. And so, Veronica, i got to say, where did you learn to speak publicly the way you have? Did you have formal oh. training? Is it genetic? What is it? <laughs> well, thank you so much for your, um, for your compliments. Um, I, my background is actually as a performer. So um, like um, a, every good Italian girl growing up, I really had a lot of classical training, so um, I studied opera for many years, and I played violin, and I sang and danced and performed on stage. So I think some of it comes from that. And then I have also gone through a little bit of media training through the AAN's Palatucci Advocacy Forum so that we can better speak about our patients and therefore get them better care and um, policymaking. I had no idea of 
that you were a performer. But yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about your background training in neurology, um, how you got to where you are in your career now. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I was first um, introduced probably to neurologic disease through my grandfather. So um, he was this absolutely brilliant physician um, who spoke seven languages and uh, studied at the University of Bologna <laughs> and, um, and just was an amazing, amazing man. And when I was in high school, I started to see his mind deteriorate um, and he suffered from dementia. Now looking back as a, as, a neural, as a full-fledged neurologist, I can say he probably suffered from vascular dementia. Um, but this is where I started to get an interest in neurology. And so uh, I, I come from many physicians in my family, and I spoke to my mother, and I said, you know, don't you know any neurologist that maybe I could study from and learn from? So in college, I started to um, do some neurologic research, and then eventually um, that took me to Boston University, where I completed all of my medical training, medical school, uh, neurology residency, and then movement disorders. So going into neurology, I thought I would be a cognitive neurologist or a neurologist that takes care of memory disorders because of my background with my grandfather. But what I found was I was really drawn um, to movement and um, and I was really drawn to this field where there was such a coordination between the higher levels of the brain, the thinking, and the movement of the person. And there was so much that I could do to treat these patients. So that's sort of how I fell into movement disorders. It's interesting because earlier in the show I mentioned that I was at the University of Texas giving grand rounds yesterday and the night before I met with the residents and – at least half of them had either parents or siblings or close relatives who were physicians. Um, so certainly you're indicative of that. Uh, do you find that amazing? You know, I have to tell you, I've thought about this a lot because I agree that there are an extraordinary amount of uh, medical students and residents who come from a family of physicians. Um, what I think it actually is is that same interplay that we see with disease and everything else of genetics and environment. So I used to think, oh, it's because we sit around the dinner table. And when I was growing up, you know, things, words like Foley catheters were thrown around the dinner table <laughs> as if it was nothing. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's not just environment. I think it's genes. I think that we, I come from a family that happens to be good at science. And we also happen to really have this maybe human connection as well. And so I, I do think it's a little bit how we're made up. Um, and what we're good at, naturally. Gene, all this time, I've been hoping my children get my wife's genes and not mine. <laughs> so um, let's get into movement disorders because you already gave a great global explanation of what a movement disorder is. Can you tell people a little bit more of the types? I think everybody's familiar with Parkinson's disease, but it's a lot more than just Parkinson's disease. Yeah, so by and large, the most common disorders that we treat are Parkinson's disease and essential tremor. Now, benign essential tremor drives me nuts. I think it's a misnomer because it's neither benign nor essential. Um, but also, we treat a lot of other diseases. So sometimes people have involuntary movements. Um, maybe they're wiggling around or they're rising or maybe they have jerk-like movements. Um, and some of those can be associated with neurodegenerative or genetic diseases like Huntington's disease. And some of them might be due to a medical condition that's underlying. Um, 
So basically, I like to say that anything that moves that shouldn't or anything that doesn't move that should, I can treat. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good way of putting it. Um, it, Your your area of expertise and, and emphasis has been Parkinson's disease primarily? Well, you know, I have to tell you that probably I'm known to be the person who treats unusual diseases. So if it looks unusual or it might be hard, to, difficult to work up, that, that seems to be my specialty. So actually, my practice, although I see a tremendous amount of Parkinson's disease, I see many, many patients, um, over 1,500, um, that I follow in my practice. So um, although I see a great number of Parkinson's disease, I see a tremendous number of atypical disorders. I have a special interest in autonomic dysfunction, so I see a lot of multiple system atrophy. Um, and then I'm the co-director of the multi disciplinary Huntington's disease and genetic ataxia clinic at Stanford. So I would say that's another big focus of mine. How much in the field of movement disorders, how much has video changed your ability to practice? Well, the fact of the matter is, is if you're a good movement disorder specialist, over the years you have learned to um, sort of emulate how these movement lo- movements look. look. However, um, the fact that we can now video our patients, it really has elevated the care of the patients because we're able to coordinate the care better. So when we go to a conference now, you know, a bunch of very uh, nerdy neurologists sit around a room at, you know, 8, 9, 10 p.m. at night, and we watch videos of patients, and we try and determine what the phenomenology of the movement is, and then how to best treat that, you know, and we're able to now coordinate the care such that we can say to a colleague, have you ever seen something like this? And rather than us displaying some silly dance that we're trying to emulate the, <laughs> the movement, now we can actually share what these movements are and how we can treat them. Has it also helped you uh, from getting curbside consulted? Because uh, I'm forever, if I see someone with an odd movement disorder, I get their permission, make a video, and send it off to somebody. Uh, you know, often up to BU or to one of the specialists here to get an opinion, and it really helps a lot. Yeah, it makes a huge difference. So we have weekly video rounds, not unlike many movement disorder departments. And I, either my colleagues are running into clinic and showing me their iPhone, or we encourage them to just send it into us, and then we like to discuss it as a group in our video round. So, yeah, I think it makes a huge difference. Um, and certainly patients who are acutely ill really need it. So we get a lot of people who have unusual movements in the ICU, for instance. We're going to take a short break, and then we're going to be back with Dr. Veronica Santini, who's my guest in this half hour. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the new treatments for movement disorders, things that we thought were untreatable in the past. Uh, We now have ways of treating them, and, and some of those treatments are fairly benign. So you're listening to Healthy Rounds on WTIC News Talk 1080. We're back on Healthy Rounds. And my guest today is uh, Dr. Veronica Santini, who joins us from California. Veronica, we talked a little bit about movement disorders. Um, what about treatments for movement disorders? Now, one of the things I did catch in your lecture, and I think it was about Parkinson's disease, but you talked about exercise and starting to exercise in your late 30s and early 40s. Was that for Parkinson's disease? I only caught a little bit of it. Yeah, so that was for Parkinson's disease. And specifically for Parkinson's disease, we know this is the first thing I tell patients 
when I diagnose them. If you leave my clinic today not having heard anything I said, please start exercising. So in the in mouse models and in animal models, we know that park, that we know that exercise likely um, releases more dopamine, helps to have more dopamine to the system, and it may actually slow the progression of Parkinson's disease down. Um, in in humans, we know that the effects of exercise are even more astronomical. We think that it also increases socialization and really makes people feel well in their bodies. Um, and so I think exercise is probably the first and foremost thing that anybody with Parkinson's disease or really a neurodegenerative disorder should be doing if they can, even in small doses. When you say a small dose, what do you mean? So, you know, some of my patients have not been exercising for years. And so I think getting them up to five or seven days a week is unrealistic initially. So I like to say, let's start with 30 minutes three times a week. Now, maybe you say, okay, I can't do 30 minutes. Well, get on a stationary bike and do five minutes, do 10 minutes. And then do that a couple times a day. Do it as much as you can. Get the heart rate up and get a little bit out of breath. So, I mean, obviously that's an easier thing to do. As we move into other treatments, pharmacologic treatments, where are we going with that in terms of movement disorders? And let me pick, let's be specific. Benign essential tremor, which I find somewhat ridiculous. It's benign if it's not yours uh, more than anything. <laughs> exactly. um, but let's talk about essential tremor or a tremor. What are, what are the ways you diagnose it and what are some of the treatments? Because I think it affects a lot of the audience. Absolutely. So essential tremor affects maybe up to 20 million people in the United States. And as you mentioned, it's neither benign nor essential. And it's really oftentimes affecting the hands, the legs, the head, the voice. And it's kind of this oscillation of the hands while you're trying to use your hands and do something with your hands. So it's very uh, disturbing for patients and really interferes with their day-to-day -day functioning. We have first and second line medication options for this disease. Um, and uh, those can be quite effective, particularly in combination. So some blood pressure agents and even anti-epileptic medicines or anti-seizure medicines um, can help to calm down the tremor. But a lot of times the doses that are needed for more severe disease are intolerable for patients or perhaps they're not working as well as we would like them to. And that's when we start to think about surgical options. So we have, I like to call them surgical options because, or procedural options because, um, you know, they are still invasive treatment. So some people can utilize botulinum toxin therapies or Botox is one of those therapies. Um, and we can kind of calm down the muscle activity. Um, escalating treatment beyond that, we've got two bigger procedural options. One of them is deep brain stimulation that has been around now for over 10 years and has been really a phenomenal treatment. We can stick, and the, the way this treatment works is it's a, it's a brain operation in which we can stick an electrode deep within the brain structures and start um, create uh, an electromagnetic field that then reduces the underlying abnormal brain rhythms. And this can calm down tremor, and then uh, people can really live more functional lives and use their hands and their arms and their legs much better. Um, another procedural option that we have 
um, that does not require brain, uh, brain surgery, so you don't have to open the skull, is a new treatment that was recently FDA approved called uh, concentrated focused ultrasound treatment. And what we can do with that, we use the same technology that you use to look at a baby when, when a mother is pregnant. And we use that technology in a focused, concentrated beam, like a laser beam, to create a little hole in the brain in the same area that creates tremor. And by creating this little hole or lesion in the brain, we're able to calm down tremor. We've now followed uh, patients with this for about two years or more, and we see that we have very good therapy with this. Uh, just briefly, since we only have about a minute or two left, you talked about your interest in autonomic problems. Can you tell our listeners what an, a dysautonomia or an autonomic problem is? Absolutely. So, any, so all of the things that you never think about doing day to day but you need to survive, that's usually um, the autonomic system controlling it. So your heart rate, your blood pressure, your digestion, your urination, your sleep-wake cycles, your temperature regulation. So you can see when the autonomic system doesn't work, people really have a lot of vague and really bothersome symptoms day-to-day, including blood pressure drop, drops and dizziness. What do you do for them? Well, we can give them medications to keep their blood pressure up, and we can do a lot of conservative measures like compression stockings or drinking more water or eating a little more salt to help mitigate these issues. You know, and those are the problems that really interfere. It's interesting because the problems you deal with are principally functional problems in the sense that they get into kind of living your life normally as opposed to these catastrophic diseases that we often deal with, like tumors and things like that. Um, so, Absolutely. What I, so you live from these diseases, but you suffer from them if they're not well treated. Exactly, exactly. Veronica, thank you. Thank you for spending time today, and thank you especially for the time you spend in Haiti um, at, at the St. Luke Mission and for everything thank you do. You. Thanks a lot. I am so appreciative. Thank you. Thanks for so your time. Much. It was great having Dr. Veronica Santini on with us. Um, She is at uh, Stanford Medical Center right now. She's out in California and just does a great job and is a tremendous resource for so many of us who are not as familiar with that area. You know, the the field of neurology has become so specialized. And uh, fortunately, we have people who really dedicate their lives to just treating that group of patients. And we always think of uh, the patients being Parkinson's, but th- there are so many people, as she said, 20 million people out there with tremor uh, and people with autonomic problems that she's worked on. With that, uh, next week, uh, we're going to be chatting probably with one of our friends from over at St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center. Uh, many thanks today to our studio producer, Mike Olko, has been on the board. Jeff Chandler is in charge of sales and marketing for Healthy Rounds. Next up on WTIC is Garden Talk with Len. Please remember to help save lives. You can do that today by becoming an organ, eye, and tissue donor. What you need to do is go to www.registerme.org. Until next week, this is Dr. Anthony Alessi. Please stay healthy. This has been Healthy Rounds with Dr. Anthony Alessi and is sponsored by St. Francis Hospital and Medical Center, Big Y Pharmacy and Wellness Center, Ratchford Eye Center, Coveris, and the Connecticut State Medical Society.
Be sure to tune in next Saturday morning at 11 for more Healthy Rounds on WTIC, News Talk 1080 and WTIC.com. Until then, stay well.